Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be talking about practical EQ. So we talked a little earlier, um, a little um, a couple weeks ago about EQ in general, theoretical EQ. But really what we're looking at here is how do you use it in the real world? So if you've got questions about that, go ahead and throw it into Makana. Uh, if you uh, if you are not logged in, you can actually use the QR code here. So this is, just go to askofficehours.com and uh, you can ask your question. You don't have to log in. Uh, you can just throw that question in. You can do that 24-7. So you can, if you see this show later and you have a question that comes up in your head, you can just use that URL and send a question in and we'll answer it in the coming days. Let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? Andy Kokendorfer starts us out this morning from Vieira, Florida, and he wonders, are there any Adobe Max software releases of Note? John? Yeah, I had a, there's two questions. Paul's got another question about this. I was going to give my my little overview. It, we saw some really good stuff yesterday from Adobe Max. They've got Firefly Model 2, the second version of, of Firefly Model 2 coming out. Adobe Express really had some really neat features in it. It's got some new 2D animation tools that look really good. Um, and then they've got a thing that has a bunch of different templates built into it for TikTok, for Facebook, and it creates all of those images and thumbnails for you automatically. And then it's got a scheduler in it for all the social media. So you can schedule all your work directly in Express, which I thought was really cool. I didn't see a text to vector, but they do have new vector tools uh, built into Illustrator that looked really neat. And then they did announce a text to video or a picture to video, a new audio model and a 3D model coming coming very, very soon. And like I said before, to prompt, prompt engineering is dying a slow death. They showed a lot of the interfaces, a lot of the switch that you do in mid journey built into the interfaces. So, you know, exposure, uh, aspect ratio, a lot of that stuff built into the interfaces. But all in all, very, very good presentation and, and great stuff. I think the script is done and over. Wow. You just think you just, because Adobe's just adding the, their audio? They're just Premiere, they showed all the integration of the text editing in Premiere and hmm. some of the tools. And most everything that's in the script now is built into Premiere. Interesting. Interesting. Next question. Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida is up next. And Bobby says, does anyone know what are the features of YouTube live streaming that are included in Google Workspace? I don't know what features there would be for YouTube live related to Google Workspace. So maybe you can be a little more specific because I haven't heard of any uh, that are different. The only thing that may happen is that you may have the ability to manage it. You you can manage the YouTube um and set up managers and so on and so forth with it. That did occur in the past, uh, but I don't know of any specific features or any features that we would consider tangible uh, that are specific to Google Workplace. Um, um, so yeah, let, it, let us know if there's something you're looking for specifically, but I haven't seen anything in that area. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas comes up next. And this is the other one that uh, John was mentioning before. At Adobe Max 2023, Adobe really uh, revealed significant advancements in the world of AI and creativity, including more realistic image generation, three new AI models, and enhanced AI capabilities for existing models such as Photoshop. Comment, please. John? Nothing to add. 
Well, you already said all the things that are to say. Yeah. So I, you know, it's, um, uh, it looks like Adobe is moving probably faster than almost anybody else when it comes to image generation. Uh, and they've got the money to do it and the, and the researchers and so on and so forth. I think that they're still, from what I've seen, they're still, you know, like mid journey still, I think is going to be ahead from the pure image quality, just because Adobe is limiting itself to what it can, um, what it can purchase or what it owns. Um, and, and that, I think that makes sense, but I think that it keeps it behind a little bit. Um, it's going to be really interesting. I was reading about, is it PIM eyes? Have, have you read about, um, uh, I just read an article this morning about PIM, PIM, I think it's called PIM eyes. And basically it's, you can throw any image into it of people, a crowd or whatever, select a person and it will go find them. Like it will tell you who they are. And it is inc- like, you know, it's like uh, facial recognition, um, at, at an, at an, outside edge. The challenge really is, is that it's hard to contain these things anymore. You know, so whether it's chat GPT or mid journey or other things, it's, it's going to, you know, we can talk about what those things look like, but uh, it's going to be really hard to contain those technologies. And there's a lot of people that are a little afraid of that, but there's, you know, I guess Google had this a decade ago and they just didn't want to release it because they thought it was too dangerous. The one cool thing that they did show yesterday, Alex, in, on the interfaces is you can load an image up as a reference. So rather than say in the style of Van Gogh, whatever, you can mm-hmm. upload an image and it will copy the style of that image for your for your prompt. Is that out on the beta yet? <laughs> uh, everything they showed yesterday is in betas, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Jeff? And I'll just add, I mean, I've been using uh, or experimenting a little bit with the Adobe Express uh, beta for, for a little while. And... It's been pretty good. I, I haven't the, I haven't gone back to using Midjourney if I'm just trying to design something kind of quick off a template. Maybe it's really easy just to go into that image box, type in what you want, and you're presented similarly with the options. You know, four options. You can choose one of them. You can generate more. Have it do it all over again, et cetera. And, and it's just, it's right there now along with whatever else you may be doing in there, a design template and just pop it right in. Courtney? Yeah, I was going to ask, John, those of you that are still in the Adobe world, I, I stepped out once they went to a subscription model. Do they still make standalone uh, entry-level uh, products like Adobe, uh, like Photoshop uh, uh, Elements and uh and Premiere Elements. So they showed Adobe and Illustrator both for the web, and they're both free right now. Really? Okay, so great. So there are free versions that you can get without licensing issues where you would have to license every single At least right now, they're free. We'll see what happens in the future. Okay, great. Thank you. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and the question is, the MSG Sphere costs $2.3 billion to build, $1 billion over budget. As a project or production manager, is there a point where you know when to say when to reduce the scope or even kill a project due to out-of-control costs? Bill? I think that's a very complex question, and here's why. There's a couple of things going on right now that I've read about in the world. Uh, That seems like a massive amount of money, but there's a project in uh, Southeast Asia, I think, that China has been doing that is up somewhere around the $1 to $300 billion level. It's an entire city that they've built, and essentially it's not working, and they may have to abandon the whole thing. That level of risk that seems insane to most of us who live real lives, you know, you you could, you're a billion dollars over a budget, that's crazy. Well, there are massive scope projects that run those kind of deficits and that have those kind of risks involved. Nobody ever likes that. But I'm just, uh, you know, there have been 
massively invested movies that have gotten to the point where they were literally about to go out to audiences and they've just, somebody in the studio says, kill it. And the whole project dies and all those sunk costs are unrecoverable. Every huge project has its own dynamic forces that are pushing on it. You may. My assumption has been with the MSG Sphere. They think that having a destination in Las Vegas that is a touristy town that people flock to and some kind of a big mega facility is still going to be profitable over years. So they made that calculation and even sold off some South Strip properties, I think, in order to help them finance it. So at this level, who knows whether it, it was a pull-the-plug project or not. That's what those folks get paid a lot of money to decide. In the bottom line, you're, if it was worth a billion dollars, it was probably worth $2.3 billion. It's just how long it takes to get the money back. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Vegas is littered with uh, uncompleted projects, the Fountain Blue Hotel that have sat, you know, three quarters finished for, you know, a decade uh, that they ran out of money or one of the investors pulls out and the project doesn't have enough money to continue to completion. Uh, That happens all the time. That's what the bankruptcy laws uh, cater to. And large corporations can use, can write off their losses as a tax loss if they've got a big tax year, tax liability year. Um, MSG is interesting in that it's uh, one of the few big projects in Vegas that I don't think it's associated with a hotel. So it's uh, just a venue, and most big projects like that, like big casinos or whatever big project is associated with a new hotel or a hotel expanding to put a theme, to tack on a theme park or some other uh, attraction to bring people in. So it's quite a gamble for Madison Square Garden Corporation or MSG Corporation uh, to do. But if they didn't get it to completion, that would be a very big write-off. Good, Chris. I think it's going to be really interesting, the first corporate um, event that happens in there. And one of the problems, I think, and John, correct me if I'm wrong, but all the big halls, all the big, you know, uh, convention centery type halls, not not LVCC, but like, you know, um, ARIA has a big convention area in the back. They always have to have dozens of large breakout rooms within <clears throat> a short walking distance to be used for a corporate thing because you have your keynote and everybody goes out to their breakout rooms and then they turn the room for the evening band, whatever. So it'll be interesting if it ever does that. But can you imagine the meetings where, and and I think that we are all immune. Unfortunately, we're all immune to the B and billion and we're getting that way with trillion. You know, when we look at, you know, debts around the planet, you know, things are, oh, we're a trillion over budget, 23 trillion or 33 trillion over budget. Like we forget that a billion is a thousand million. That's a lot of millions. I mean, can you imagine going into the meetings going, yeah, we need another hundred million dollars. We need another 200 million. I mean, it's easy to say, oh, it's just one billion. No, that's a thousand millions that they had to scratch at over and over. It's like, I just, I can't imagine. And then, and then, you know, we feel bad when one of our, one of our videos goes a half day over in post, like good grief. Uh, the, the, the one, uh, participant in this that that is definitely not taking a huge risk and is probably gonna have a huge return is you two <laughs> so they, the numbers that are rumored that they're getting paid uh you know are just a huge percentage of the of the opening ticket as well what as numbers are you front. hearing 
Uh, I'm hearing uh, the numbers I heard were $10 million up front and 75% of the ticket. Like, you know, so it's, it's, that's a lot of money. Like they had a hard time. So they, they, um, that's, that's the number that has been floating around. So um, uh, anyway, the, uh, so that's, you know, that means that they're, that means that MSG is potentially taking one or $2 million uh, a uh, show, like in, because it's sold out 17,000 tickets times $400 is like six and a half million, seven million dollars a unit. But then, then you're giving a bunch back to the band, and then you're, um, and then you're keeping a little bit of it. Now, obviously, that's not the deal they're going to have in the future. So, you know, but you're looking at a, you know, you're looking at something that has. Now, they're also doing other events in that space. So this isn't the only. The concerts aren't the only thing they're doing there. And one of the big advantages of having a big screen that doesn't have a lot of um, buildup is you can change the space all the time. That's the argument. You know, you can constantly just be doing something else. Um, uh, the, uh, so, so I think that, you know, if they, if they start to increase their take on that, then, you know, it, it, it seems like a, it's not a lot, but if they increase their, what they're taking on those tickets to, let's say $3 million or $4 million, and then you multiply that by, um, by 300 days or, you know, 350 days a year, you know, now you're talking about making the, you know, them making a billion dollars a year. So you look at, you know, so there's, there's, you know, it, it, it's slowly, it, you know, that you can see how at first when they when they first came out, I was 100 percent like they are going to be buried, you know, in this in this in this event. As I started doing more of the math and figuring out that, oh, they're charging a lot more than the average. I think the average ticket on that thing is like 300 bucks or something like that. Three or four hundred dollars a, a, um, a show, a show um, uh, at least that's what I've seen floating around. So the the math starts to add up. You know, um, now if the other shows are less expensive or if you're doing more of them, um, a lot of things happen. One of the things that I think why you might not see corporate um, in this in environment is there's one thing that I haven't seen yet in, the, in, in any cell phone, anything else. I've not seen a person on the screen. So I've not seen iMag. I have seen experiential things. And I think that's because it takes too long to get to the screen. So I think that they, I think that there's a delay issue, <laughs> like, you know, because they have to process all that video to get it, to get it in there. And I think that that is, you know, we, we have trouble with using hardware that doesn't do any processing and we're, this, the audio is still not lining up with the video. Um, adding a, you know, a, a, you know, Stitcher and, and all the other things that, they, that are required, they could lose, you know, as much as a quarter second you know, on the, on the screen, but I just, I find it fascinating that I haven't ever seen any, any person on that screen. And, so and I, th they do so the U2 people. concert, you didn't see any large I, people I, of the band you, on have, the screen. Have you seen I cell have. phone coverage? You have? Yeah. So they have a couple of different ways that they'll do it. They, they have like styles that they do. One of the things they did is they had a, an animated background with these like helicopters that came in with yep. spotlights and in yep. the beam of the spotlight, they had live footage from the stage. Okay. They also do a thing where they have like a, a sea of uh, stars or something, whatever. Uh, and then in it are like billboards that, that pop up that have the band in okay. the billboards. So they are doing IMAG, not full, you know, camera two on the screen, plop. It's always inset in a box or something. And I wonder how long they hang on it. Because the, the, the reason I bring this up was that, is that it is... Um, they, when you see the pictures, they're really small. <laughs> they're really small in frame. Like they're tiny down there. And, and so, um, and this is my complaint. This is why I don't go to big shows. Like the last show I saw was actually uh, a U2 at the Coliseum in like the late 90s. 
And I just, I was sitting closer to the parking lot than the stage. And I was like, I don't need to do this anymore. And so, you know, like, I, I love you too, but I don't, um, the, I don't need to do that again. Um, you know, so, uh, anyway, so, so I think that uh, I have a problem in general with being far away from that screen. I think that the distribution we're seeing from, you know, out to theaters, um, is something that probably makes more sense to me than, than, do, you know, trying to make a giant venue. That said, I can't wait to go to the sphere. Like, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, I actually think that there's a smaller sphere that's in, in Burbank. I'd rather go to that one. <laughs> it's like it's like tiny. It's like a tiny little sphere um, that, that that they use to demo the the product. Um, I haven't ever been in, in it. I can just see it from my hotel room. Yeah, the other issue, sorry, about the iMag is that this nobody is sitting very far from the screen. So the delay, if there are delay issues, they'll be right. enhanced because you're really relatively close to the screen. Yeah, yeah, Jeff. And so far, we've only talked about inside the sphere. Let's remember that the outside of the sphere is money generating, the advertising revenue that they can get from the outside of that thing. Yeah, it's some insane number, too. Like, to put it, to, to be on the sphere per day is lots of money. I think I it was almost a half a million dollars. Yeah. So they're, they're generating. 75K? Yeah, per day. So, so they're, you know, I, I think that, you know, I went from being very pessimistic to, Oh, they might make a lot of money with this, <laughs> you know, and this to, to get back to the original question, um, you know, there's also an, an impact on a failed project on a brand. So, you know, at some point the brand oftentimes will make a decision just to eat through it because they can't afford to be seen as they built this halfway and then quit. Go ahead, John. Jeff, you stole my thunder. So they're charging 400 and change per day and their CPM is interesting because you know, maybe, maybe, maybe a half a million people will see it on a daily basis, but they're calculating all the social media hits in, in that number. I, I have to say that I was at the, uh, what was it? I don't know what they call it now. It used to be the Las Vegas Hotel. It used to be something else. It's the... Uh, um, oh, then the Hilton, then the Westgate, and then who knows? I, I don't know what it's called anymore. Anyway, you could see it from there, and I could, you can't not look at it. Like, you can't, it's moving. It's, it's big. It's huge. And you just can't not stare at it and look at what's going on there. Go ahead, Bill. So uh, the accounting for live shows and things like that is weird. And I was reading not too long ago after Jimmy Buffett's passing about some of his brilliance in the business world. That's how he ended up with a billion dollars at the end of his life. But he made a deal once. Uh, first, he asked for 110 percent of the gate, which is I want a dollar ten for every dollar in tickets you sell. And they're going, well, you're crazy. We're never going to do this. And they got into a big bunch of negotiations. And he said, look, I can put so many butts in seats. You're going to do fine. Give me 110 or I'll ask for 115 percent. And then it got so contentious that in the end, he looked at him, he said, OK, tell you what, you keep the whole gate. Just give me merch. Give me the T-shirts. And they went, yeah, wait. And they stopped and they thought about it when they actually ran the numbers. Buffett sold so much merchandise that he was actually going to make more off the merch sales than he was getting 110 percent of the gate. That's how squirrely I think big merchandise and this kind of big event things can be. You really have to be pretty sharp because there's all sorts of hidden profits and hidden costs and hidden. Well, it's, it's funny. Someone I, we've seen this a lot where someone who knows how to do math will will give you a, a deal that just looks great, and it oftentimes looks like a low risk hit. And in it, if someone gives you, in, in a, especially in the event world, if someone gives you something that looks low risk, it means they've figured out some angle. <laughs> like, you know, like they and, and they're like, hey, you don't have to pay anything up front. You know, and, and they figured out some angle that's going to have them make way. And I, I mean, I've done it in deals where I've said, oh, yeah, you can do. 
this can be da 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 da, and I just I know what the math is, you know, and and I know that they don't know what the math is. It doesn't mean that they don't make any money. It just means that I that I did really well because I I I understood the angle that that could be used there. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. So d- did I hear this right? You can rent. You can actually just put like a billboard on the outside. I'm of sure the there's sphere. a lot of limitations, but I mean, it's not. It's not. You can't put anything out there. But yeah, you can put. You can, they're, they're, it's it's and it's like 400k. It's like an activation. So you know, so it's going to be. You know, there's going to be meetings. There's going to be design. There's going to be. This is how this sure. is going to work. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Last night be, they I, had Monday Night Football on there. So yeah. I'm thinking, like, don't be surprised. The next NAB. Oh yeah, I'm just black saying, magic. I, I, no, no, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm thinking be it a just, huge black magic. I'm thinking of blowing out my 401k and just having a Chris Fenwick ad all over that thing for NAB. Exactly. It's just Why gonna be with NAB. I, the problem is I have to figure out the Fenwick framer on a sphere. That's gonna be weird. Yeah, exactly. All right, next question. Next one comes to us from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. Does anyone use Automator app on a Mac and for what? Uh, Jeff. So I have a very small, easy automator that has saved me countless hours. Uh, it simply, it's built-in tools in there and it takes a WAV file and it gives me an AAC data compressed from it. Um, and so I set that up. It's a droplet in my menu bar. So when I'm sending something to a client for review, sending to musicians to let them hear things, not for a final product, just for like someone to listen to something, just take a WAV file, take a folder full of WAV files, drop it on that, and it creates uh, MP4 AAC audio files from that. And uh, it's, it's amazing, saves so much time. Uh, the big brother to Automator is AppleScript. Um, and I uh, found and modified an AppleScript that takes a open, uh, your, your top open numbers document with two columns and your top open uh, keynote document. And so I can put a two column list of uh, what I want to be lower thirds. And it can be, you know, composer and piece title or piece title and movement. And I can have an entire spreadsheet of that in numbers, hit one Apple script, and it will put that into keynote and give me lower thirds. Jeff? You know, right now and for quite some time, the the order of priority and attention from Apple is shortcuts, then Apple Script, then Automator. I, I don't think anyone at Apple has looked at Automator in years. It's questionable if they've looked at or done anything to Apple Script. You know, when they bought Workflow uh, and turned it into shortcuts for iOS, that team, uh, re- you know, replaced pretty much the infrastructure for automation and Apple. And that's the focus because the new modern, uh, and, and of course it moved to the Mac, so it's great for doing things on the Mac also. Um, I, I frankly wouldn't even trust and I, I anything in Automator because again, I just have zero confidence that it's using any of the new goodies in current Mac OS. Shortcuts can, for instance, do... It's the shortcuts in Automator or the easy to use, no programming, no coding, kind of drag and drop blocks of stuff, actions that you can do. Um, what's nice about uh, shortcuts is you can you can also embed Apple Script for things that it can't yet do. The one nice thing I will tell you about Automator that's still kind of handy is if you want to do something and you don't know what the Apple script is for that because 
uh, a lot of the, if you need to do UI control, like make something happen that is not able to be automated, you can do the drag and drop or the one thing you can do is watch me where you click a record button, you do what you want to happen and then you hit stop. It'll give you just easy steps, but then you can expand those and get the actual Apple script code that is doing that and then move it into something uh, else like just pure Apple script or as part of a modern shortcut. Good, Bill. The big plus for me about Automator is that they haven't broken it. No matter how many op- upgrades they've done, all my little Automator scripts still work. Probably the one I use more than anything else is break about much multi-page PDFs. I constantly get slideshows sent to me to add as B-roll into videos, and they're usually multi-page, and I can drop them on my Automator applet, and it'll just f- f- create a folder with all those slides broken out. That kind of simple repetitive task is really useful to have something you don't have to think about and never seems to break. Um, although most of my automation now is being done in things like compressor because I have to do more of that in the audiobook world, processing files. But yeah, drag and drop into applets and things like that. Anything that lets you do that, it's a it's a huge time saver. And uh, the the OG of Automator, uh, Sal Sagoyan, an old friend of mine, is going to be on at the end of this month. So uh, I think oh, it's August awesome. 30th that we're going to have Sal on. So you'll be able to ask all these questions of Sal. He is amazing. <laughs> Thank <laughs> really, him for really, saving days out of my life. Yeah, so we're really excited to have him. So he'll be here, I think, at the end of the month on a Monday. So stay tuned for that. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Apple spent $250 million on Killers of the Flower Moon, debuting October 20th, the first test of Apple's plans to spend a billion dollars per year on movies for theaters. Are they spending enough? Why theaters? Courtney? Well, an answer to the why theaters is to it's uh, Apple's a prestige product, and they want to attract prestige directors and actors and be qualified for Academy Awards. And Academy Awards have this little rule that says uh, if you have a theatrical-length feature film that has to qualify for winning any kind of Oscar, it has to premiere in a theaters, and it has to run for at least seven consecutive days, and I think five or six uh, um, particular city. There's a whole uh, raft of rules here for eligibility. Um, <clears throat> they have to be over 40 minutes. They have to be exhibited in 35 millimeter, 70 millimeter, or in a 24 or 48 frame progressive scan digital cinema f- product with 2048, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's a whole raft of uh, rules to be eligible for the Oscar. If it premieres on a streaming service first, not eligible. So it has to premiere in theaters and theatrical theaters for at least seven consecutive days with three showings per day, uh, or it can't qualify. So that's one of the main reasons. Uh, Plus, they're trying to attract, uh, you know, Martin Scorsese is no slouch, uh, or Leonardo DiCaprio. These are top box office draws. So uh, they're trying to get some eyeballs and some prestige that they're trying to buy to attract more people to the streaming service. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I was reading about Killers of the Flower Moon, and it's really fascinating to me because according to what I read, they started out making one movie, and then Scorsese said, wait a second, I see something in here, and I want to change the whole movie. So they literally stopped production well into the the process had the script entirely rewritten, changed the focus on characters, and even had uh, DiCaprio, who was signed to do one part, switch to a different part and added other people there. This is somebody with that clout and that creative uh, trust to be able to completely 
reconstruct something mid-journey and kind of make it something new. I'm really fascinated as to what it was that attracted his attention. I think it had to do with the focus of the movie, moving it away from being more of a traditional cowboy movie and being more a, a character study and particularly the Native American aspects of it. I'm, I'm just fascinated. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, you know, one of the big things of the streamers, while they haven't given the same back end to a lot of creatives, they have given them a lot of freedom. Um, so they've, they allow them to like they, you know, they for a while, Netflix was basically going to people and say, what's your, you know, what's your, um, you know, the, the, the moonshot project that you want to do? Angelina Jolie, I worked on one, I mean, I worked on the, the pr projection of one uh, that was, um, uh, first they killed my father, which was about the Cambodian, uh, and Angelina Jolie wanted to do a movie about the Cambodian genocide in Cambodia within the Cambodian in, in Khmer in the Khmer language and they said, Okay, here's the money. You know, and and they and they produced it. And that's what a lot of directors got. Someone like Martin Scorsese is gonna get anything he asks for. I mean that's what that's how you get them onto a get him onto a streaming platform. And uh, part of the issue is, is that a lot of these uh, filmmakers, as, as Courtney alluded to, really want to see it on a big screen. They want to go with their friends. <laughs> you know, they want to have people see what they did on a big screen before it goes into streaming. And so a lot of this is to, to make them um, feel better. And, and it generally makes a lot of these could, it can offset a lot of the costs as well. So there's a lot of reasons for, you know, for them to do that. I think that um, it'll be interesting to see. I think Apple has probably taken the route that most other streamers look like they're about to take, which is a lot less content, spending a lot more per content. I think Apple started very slowly. I don't think you're going to see a, 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 a significant increase in Apple's productivity. Um, I think they're going to do about the same amount of content that they're doing now. And I think you're actually going to see the other streamers um, because of the contract. What we're hearing is the other streamers are going to fall more in line with Apple than less in line with Apple. They've been trying to outproduce Apple or Netflix has been trying to outproduce everyone. It sounds like all of that's going to calm down. <laughs> you know, so uh, so they're, you know, they're kind of getting into the reality of the next production. And it was it potentially was going that way anyway, but it's now accelerated a lot. Um, and so uh, you'll, you'll see the, 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 mar the model is going to change dramatically over the next uh, uh, two to three years. Next question. John Foltz in Ceiling Grove, Pennsylvania is up next. I have two stream decks on a Mac laptop. They attach to a hub. When he moves the Mac for a class or meeting, one of the stream decks doesn't wake. Unplugging the USB and replugging uh, typically fixes it. What's going on? Jeff? Now, first of all, I assume what John is, is saying is that the stream decks are plugged into the hub. He unplugs and just is taking the Mac, leaving everything there. He comes back, plugs in the hub to the computer, and one of the stream decks doesn't wake. First of all, I would say almost certainly the first thing that comes to mind is just to make sure that you are using a powered hub. Uh, those almost certainly need power. You know, they have the little LCDs, all that good stuff. So uh, I would make sure you're using a good uh, powered hub that and that it has enough power that you actually can check what the stream decks need two of them with whatever else maybe you're running through that hub and make sure that your hub is delivering enough power for all of that, uh, at least a USB 3.0 hub, which will deliver a little bit more power. Um, and then if that's still not if you already are, then, you know, if you can, it's process of elimination. Try a different hub. Uh, try the cables, even just potentially swapping the existing USB cables between the two stream decks and see if that 
now magically switches which Stream Deck uh, wakes and doesn't. But it's just now elimination to see what specific component of that chain is the problem. Courtney? I'm not for sure because I'm not quite that familiar with the stack of for the USB handler on the Mac. But what may be happening is if you have two identical uh, devices plugged into a USB hub, uh, when you plug that hub into the Mac, it tries it convers it, it initiates conversation with any USB devices plugged in. And since the two of them have the same ID uh, in them, it instantiates uh, a path for for the first one, and it sees the second one, and it goes, oh, I've already done that one, and skips it. So if you unplug it and plug it back in again, a few seconds later, it it may uh, re-register, because the two of them are trying to register at the same time, and it may may think that it was just, you know, the same information coming in, or if it, if it has the same information coming in at the same time, uh, it may not set up a new path for the second uh, for the second hub. And a quick reminder, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. So if you've got questions, you can either uh, use Makana and ask those questions right now and vote on those questions so that we know what order you'd like us to ask them in. Uh, or you can use this little QR code here or just go to askofficehours.com and, uh, and then throw those in and we can address them as they, as they roll in. So go ahead and throw those questions in and let's go ahead to the next question. Courtney Gooden in Hollywood here, who is just speaking, is up next for our next question. It's the last day of Prime Day. Has anyone found any good audiovisual deals? Guy? Yeah, one of the coolest things that I found recently when I was doing a little research for the, the new Apple glasses uh, was a product called uh, Enreal, or it was called Enreal when I got them. They're now called Xreal. They look like this. These are a 120-inch display in front of you. And everybody that I've showed these to loves these things. I showed them to John Idelson um, at Zoomtopia. He bought them. Oliver Breidenbach bought them immediately. Like, they're just so, they're so cool. So right now I have it hooked up to my phone. So you, to use it with, it's USB-C into the glasses. And to use HDMI, you need this little adapter box. And if you want to use it with your phone, you have to have the little lightning to HDMI. But you can use this with uh, an ATEM and have a 120-inch multi-view in front of your face. So now you can see things like focus. It's really cool. So they're on sale. Um, yesterday, they were cheaper. Uh, they must have hit some kind of threshold because um, they're not as cheap as they were. Um, what did you yesterday, get for? they were 22% off. And oh, okay. today... Today they're like uh, 11%, 11% off. I'll put a link. Not in the that chat. I'm looking. <laughs> buy them. I'm serious. Buy them. Everybody they, here they should good? buy them. I mean, you can always hear Alex is They will blow you. They will blow your mind. <laughs> I've had the $3,500 uh, Microsoft glasses. These are really cool for 300, 300 bucks. I mean, yeah. they're crazy. There you go, Jeff. Guy, do they handle if you require corrective lenses for close? Yeah, you reading? can. That's a good question. They do have an add-on where you can take your prescription and add it in because it's uh, inside of here, there's a, a piece that you could swap out that would allow you to do that. And there's also a nose thing so that you could swap that. that that's included. And then when you want to carry it with you, I was watching movies on the plane. I, I mean, that's the other thing is going to a concert. Like I was watching uh, a Taylor Swift concert just to see what it was like in pink. And I, it, it's like they're there. I mean, it's, it's so realistic. So yeah, this is what it fits in with the USB cable. So you could have your Mac um, on a, on an airplane with a 120 inch screen. And if you get the other piece called the beam, you could actually pin stuff in your environment. So you could have three screens around in your environment. It's really cool. And is it able to do stereo given that it's got two I, eyes? 
Uh, I don't know about that, but that's uh, sorry. Right. I thought you meant audio. It does have speakers in the ear in the right, earpieces right. too, so audio comes across. But I don't I don't know if it does stereo like three D uh, video. I got Courtney. Well, that's it. What was the name of that product again, uh, guy? What was called it called? The, uh, X Real Air. X Real Air. I'm going to take a look for that. Uh, the Prime. One of the best deals is I always buy um, Fire Sticks to put on my TVs because you can buy a top end 4K. The uh, Fire Stick 4K, uh, which comes with Dolby, supports Dolby HDR and and um, uh, all the uh, Atmos uh, audio stuff, and it's twenty two, twenty three bucks on Prime Day. Not the Max; they don't discount the Max, and the only difference in the Max is it has uh, a Wi-Fi six, and if you don't have Wi-Fi six, it's not going to do you any good, and it doesn't, and it has about five hundred twelve k more RAM, but that's about the only difference between those two. So twenty three bucks for a streaming stick is really good, and it interfaces well with uh, the uh, A Lady uh, voice control. So it's great for doing searches and telling the A Lady to put something up on the TV. It turns on the TV, goes to whatever streaming service you have, and puts that up, uh, and tunes to it, finds things on YouTube, etc. So I have a lot of those streaming sticks around. Next question. Daniel Partridge in Rochester, Minnesota, says, I watched the weekend Q&A on demand later, and the HDR version makes the colors look washed out in Firefox. I read Firefox is probably not supporting HDR. Is there some setting I'm missing to get something that looks a little better not in HDR? Uh, yeah, you can get a, a plugin for Firefox called Chrome. So, so you know, like the Chrome browser will look will probably work just fine, uh, you know. So the um, uh, I I don't know, you know. I think that Firefox is pretty far behind on supporting a lot of these a lot of these um, processes inside of that browser. And so, what it has to do with the fact that it's not recognizing the HDR portion of the manifest, most likely, and so it's just giving you the SDR version. Um, it may the if it looks really washed out. What's actually happening is is that. It's it is recognizing that there's a video there. It's just not applying any of the the re, the conversion back, and so that's going to mean that it's not trying to tone map. It's not trying to do anything else. Um, it's just delivering to you the HDR. It would look like it was poured. It would probably look like they poured coffee on it. <laughs> so um, uh, typically, uh, um, so so I think that that's probably the issue. Um, on a PC, you're gonna. I don't know whether you're on a Mac or PC from your question. Um, on a PC, you're going to have more problems with viewing HDR than on a Mac because Apple has been supporting a lot of these tools, a lot of the, the HDR stuff for quite some time. And, P and um, Microsoft has just been a little less less speedy in that area. So um, it also depends on what type of HDR they're doing. So what you can do is if you, um, a lot of times what you're linking to, if you go into the developer um, version of your developer view, you'll see the manifest or you'll see a link to the manifest. You can download that manifest and see whether they're delivering the HDR in HDR 10 or are they delivering in Dolby Vision. If you're on a PC in Firefox, the chances of, of it reading Dolby Vision are very low, um, you know, so unless you've paid the dollar that Microsoft pushes off to you to pay for that, um, the uh, you will you will not, it, it may be misread. So, um, but I think that if you're watching it on Chrome or Safari on a Mac, you should find that it pops up and looks good. Um, uh, specifically, Safari on a Mac should, should look crystal clear with an HDR signal. Um, and this, again, has to do with that Apple just invested in this about a decade before everybody else. And so it just everything is a lot smoother there. So, But try those and come back to us. If, if, uh, if you try on another uh, browser and they don't work, let us know. If it's just um, Firefox, then I, you know, there's not a lot of ways to fix it. 
Um, Firefox is pretty far behind in this area. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is up with this. California Governor Newsom signs the Right to Repair Act into law minus game consoles and alarm systems. Will Apple phones, Mac minis and so forth come under this? And he's got a link there. Chris. So is there anything that Apple says that we are not allowed to open up our iPhone and repair it? They actually send you a kit now. They have a kit that they'll send you so that you can do it yourself. So before the kit, did they tell me I was not allowed to open up my phone? No. Yeah, so they the just thing said, about they right said to repair void your warranty. Just void warranty, yeah. Yeah, they say you're not allowed, but it void your warranty, yeah. Which is a lot of a lot of things say that. Exactly. So I mean I don't think I don't think there's ever been a law or any ruling that says we can't do it. You're more than welcome to to repair it. However, you might break it. It's really hard. You know, the, the, the tools you buy at, you know, Home Depot probably aren't the ones you need. You're pro- probably not going to need a drill or a chainsaw to open it up. You're going to need specialty tools. I mean, what's I, I don't understand what this is all about. I mean, they're just hard to fix. The right to repair doesn't yeah. mean it's going to be easy to repair. Yeah. You no, can, I'm, I'm, you're more than welcome to do it, but you'll probably break it because it's hard. Bill? Yeah, uh, for those of you who don't aren't aware of it, uh, to me the class act in this is iFixit. iFixit is a website that you can look up your actual device, and most importantly, they will give you a degree of difficulty. They will also send you a pack of disposable tools, plastic spudgers, and the little Torx tip screwdrivers that are inexpensive. The whole thing doesn't usually cost a lot of money, but most importantly, is their step by step instruction. I have gotten up to medium difficulty and had success repairing particular things like when a an old laptop of mine, the, the left stereo speaker was starting to crackle. So I was able to go in, take apart my laptop, replace that speaker using their step-by-step brilliant instructions and get mm. it done. I've also run into the outer edge of that. If you think you're, you know, expert level, you're probably not because some of those repairs are incredibly difficult to accomplish so just be aware that repairing is possible on these Apple things, and it does typically void your warranty. Jeff? I will just add to the iFixit praise. It's great. And I've I've done one of the haymakers where, I mean, I needed the special kit, and I opted for the version that gives me the special tools for the special screws and everything. And, I mean, you are... It was a it was a Mac laptop, and I mean you're moving things that you wouldn't even dream of. Like why is this here? But of course, once you look, it's just there's a there's an yeah. intelligence to the layout. But but they let you do it. But the right to repair um, is also about how long parts will be available for. So it dictates that it dictate. You know, Apple saw this coming, so they quite some time ago started allowing authorized repair facilities, third party. That in other words, it used well, they to let be. you do it, do it at home. I mean, they let you. It's not. Uh, they're they're allowing you. They'll send you the kit to do the thing, um, and they have authorized and other unauthorized, and they have you know they kind of, um, yeah. It's such it didn't such used a, to be right. In other words, your option was you take it to or the avoid your warranty, genius yeah. or, or you may still you do it if you open it and break it. You're still going to be on the hook for it. Yeah, go ahead, John. Right, but in other there, words, just ahead. to add, if you take it yeah. to one of the third party authorized repair facilities, it's considered a legitimate. Repair yeah, you have to go to an board. authorized repair facility yeah, for it to be considered right, right, a legitimate right. uh, fix. Yeah, go ahead, John. Mr. Fenwick, you're absolutely wrong. 
If you watch Lewis Rossman, he goes over this ad nauseum. He's been in front of many state legislatures trying to get this passed. You cannot get parts. You cannot get schematics. Some things you cannot repair because they're soldered onto the motherboard, and you just can't fix it. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, he's right. Lewis Rossman brought up uh, the whole part of this and campaign for it. But the another thing problem they had with the phones is the fingerprint reader security issue. You couldn't replace the screen because the fingerprint reader, reader was attached to the screen. And to reauthorize a new fingerprint reader, because it was part of the screen, you had to have a special tool that only Apple had access to. So you couldn't, you could replace it, but then you couldn't log into it. So you couldn't, uh, uh, you know, for security purposes, they said, you know, only authorized Apple repair centers that have the special reauthorization tool to uh, reauthorize the fingerprint reader for logging in are allowed. So that was one reason that the whole right to repair was a big issue. And the, the equipment that they send you to take it apart, which you know, involves heating up the whole screen at a single time to an even temperature to remove the the uh, all the stuff that's glued together without destroying the phone. Um, that stuff's fairly expensive to rent and keep. So unless you're a dealer, uh, it doesn't make sense. To, well, it doesn't, but, but I don't think the law requires them to make it easy. Like, I think that's just... You no, right but I mean, it just doesn't right make financial easy. sense to do it. Although yeah, you have the right to repair. You'd be stupid if you were a single person to pay for all that equipment to repair you, a $1,000 phone, you know, $700 worth of equipment rental or something to repair it. It would phone. be crazy to take an iPhone to anyone other than Apple. Like, I'm just letting you know, like, like they can give this... Apple's like, let's do right to repair. If you take your iPhone to someone other than Apple to fix it, you are nuts. Like, uh, like, like certified nuts. Like, you know, because that the level of precision that that's built at and all the security and all the things that are tied into it, for you to let somebody else mess with that, with that enclave is, I can't say the word, bat crazy. <laughs> like, so like it is. And so, uh, you know, it's fine to let, you know, Apple will send you the kit. Apple is just going here. If you're that crazy, we will let you, we'll give you enough rope to hang yourself. Like, but, but you'll, it, the phone will never work the same way again. Like it will never work the same. I've tried it. Like just as a, an old phone to have it fixed, it's never the same. Um, and it's just, it, you know, just find a Worse way to find if, money. If they want you to leave it with them. Yeah, I will never leave a phone with, uh, the problem is that is my security. Like I won't, my phone locks immediately. I don't, like that's my, you know, I do not, do not allow someone else to touch my phone. <laughs> like, you know, like so, so um, it's just, it's just crazy. And and so I get all the right repair stuff. It's fine, but it's not, it's not viable in the, in the current technology because all that stuff has been, you know, talking about three nanometer uh, processes and then packing all the stuff in. And you're basically, I mean, those those batteries are like little bombs, you know, because they hold so much, um, they, they, they hold so much energy in a, such a small amount of area. It is insane to let civilians play with this. And, and it's just, it's fine. There'll just be a bunch of things that go wrong. And that's, that's what will happen because this is a dumb law. Uh, next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina is up next. Uh, NOBE, Nobe Omniscope, announced a new major release this week. Has anyone tried it yet? Is this the answer to our combined video and audio scoping dreams? Go ahead, Guy. It's pretty cool. Um, it is still a little bit buggy. I've had it crash a couple times. But uh, here's what it looks like. One of the features that I'm digging is that you can drag around a face like this and you can get um, just the reading and I used to have to do this manually. This was tough to do. Yeah, I'd have to do it in 
in a, a different piece of software. So now I could check my vector scope and see if uh, flesh tones are, are uh, accurate or if I need to make some changes either in white balance or in my lighting. But yeah, this is it. Um, it does have, well, if you get the upgraded license, you can do some NDI outputs. Um, I'm not sure what all the other um, new features are, but uh, it is pretty cool. It works. You know, I, I think that they've, uh, Omniscope has really centered a corner of this market. Like, I just see it everywhere now, but like with, with trucks and in uh, production processes, and it is by far the most technical one. Yes, it is a little, I think, the current version. I had a problem with the last version until this version came out where it wasn't properly syncing with my Mini. One thing to notice is that um, you can't... It, the black magic doesn't didn't show up when the first beta. Uh, I think it's now it's now working where it didn't show up automatically um, as an as an option. You had to go in and turn something on. Um, but uh, it is on sale. I think it's twenty five percent off right now, and we are working on getting um, getting them on to talk about it. It is it's the scopes that you need, <laughs> in my opinion. Like if you're looking for scopes at this point, uh, we've been using it for years. Um, we've used a lot of other ones. It's not any less accurate than the hardware scopes. I think it's 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 the same. We've gone head to head with them. And it's, uh, it, it gives you so much flexibility. It's really, really great. Uh, next question. Guy, your face was a touch warm. Uh, Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada says, does anyone use Digital Performer for Mac anymore? Oh, by the way, this is a QR code question drop. Does anyone use? I, I don't think I've opened Digital Performer in a decade. So I, I think it's, you know, I don't think a lot of us think about that that much. Um, I think that the people who are really into Digital Performer, really into it, I don't know if it's growing much in the market. Uh, next question. Next question from Roger Martin in Tonto Basin, Arizona. What do you recommend for taking a music video that's in Spanish, translated to lyrics in English, to superimpose on the video? They'd like the lyrics to look like the video uh, I sent looking something. Uh, he's looking for something automatic that will do it. Thanks. You know, if it's a music video and it's three and a half or four minutes long, I would I would hesitate to worry about whether it's automatic or not. I mean, this is like an afternoon to work on it. You'll spend more time trying to figure out how to make this work. Now, if you've got a lot of them to do, then then that makes sense. But if you have one that you're trying to fix, I wouldn't I wouldn't bother. Um, I would just I would just go in. You probably have the lyrics somewhere, and you can place them in in many editors. So whether it's Resolve or Premiere or Final Cut, you can place those. I find Final Cut's actually the easiest interface to move the, the move the text around um, and then you place them in there you move them around you make sure it's just what you want and then you export an SRT and then that's going to import into your system yeah go ahead Courtney yeah there are a number of suppliers out there that provide uh, video translation uh, for closed captioning here's one called vid.io that you upload your video it translates it and uh, then you download it again and I believe it's free so, uh, and it will do, I don't know, 185 different languages from whatever you upload. So there's a chance, and I know there's one that does AI that actually matches the lip movements of the people yeah. on the screen. And I'm, I can't remember the name of it. Maybe John remembered. I go ahead, Bill. And I was just going to say that a lot of them, uh, I use Simon Says, and I think other people do too, um, they will allow you to change the language. So you can literally just take but the does audio Simon track. Says do, does, it, does it recognize Spanish? I know Simon yeah, Says will go uh, into yeah. many languages. I don't know if it recognizes Spanish. I thought it was just English. Oh, that's interesting. I've never tried yeah. one that originated in Spanish. Yeah. I've gone the other way that's many the, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I've uh, been, yeah, my other point was that it, 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 even if it's 99% 
accurate, 99.9, that's one in 100 words that's going to be wrong. So you still have to look through it if you want it to be done right. If it's just casual, not a big deal, but it does require some human intervention at the back end if you want it just right. Go, Jeff. And, and the one that I, I would say take a look at that, that we talked about, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago is Hey Jen. And that's probably the one Courtney's uh, talking about. But it, it's the one where, the, you know, they showed a video where a guy just recorded a video and then all of a sudden, magically, now he's got versions of that video where he is speaking in other languages and it matches the the lips and everything. Um, and I don't know, they may also have, since they're doing all that, they may also have the ability to do the text on screen um, as well. And perhaps in just only the text, if that's what you're looking for. Next question. Uh, Sam Rhymes in Maidenhead in the UK says, looking for camera for content creation and streaming with a budget of $500 US. Any suggestions? Yeah, there's a couple that are out there that, you know, I would I would be looking at the, a lot of the Sony line. The Sony line has, if you're especially doing content creation, the autofocus works really, really well. Um, there's the ZV-1F, um, the A6000. Um, there are some other ones from Canon, uh, like the EOS uh, 2000D. Uh, but the autofocus, when you're doing content creation and streaming, the autofocus becomes really, really important. And Sony is better at it than everyone else right now. Uh, next question. Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada says, has anyone seen or used Commander One Pro FTP client in the Apple App Store? Is it worth buying? And that's another one of our QR drop questions. Yeah, go ahead, John. I, I don't know about this one. This one's 30 bucks. I use FileZilla. It's free. It's super easy to use. I think it's probably the most popular for Mac. I use Transmit. <laughs> so Transmit is from Panic. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Transmitter, uh, Cyberduck's the other one to take a look at. Yeah, I, I I have been using I don't know I've been using Transmit since it, I think it pretty much since it came out I think that came I think it actually came as swag in a in a Mac world thing many many years ago and I just have that's all I've used but I haven't used do we use FPP that much anymore I don't I'm trying to think of the last time I used it it's been been a while it's been a day uh, next question. Marty Adius in Maryland says the USB compliance organization has at least 30 different classifications for USB ports and cables, but there's no requirement to mark the cables. How much confusion does this cause consumers and why? Good morning. Yeah, you know, I have all these USB wires and um, they're A's and B's and C's and now 4's, uh, Thunderbolt's. Once you take it out of the package, there's no way to know what's what. You know, I plugged a plugged my phone in the other day using a, a wire that matches the connectors, and the phone said it was going to take 34 and a half hours to charge. And I changed the cable, and it was an hour and a half. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so when you look at the uh, when you look at the different classifications that are specified, you know, this is what. Uh, packages are supposed to be marked at because uh, after testing and compliance, it's crazy. What's going on? Yeah, go, Jeff. Yeah, I, I think the the wheels fell off that cart as soon as they renamed, you know, uh, USB three to, and I still can't keep it straight. You know, that's now USB three point whatever Gen one. Um, for the average consumer, it was really easy. USB 2, USB 3. USB 3 must be better than USB 2. And USB-C, of course, has made it 
completely worse for the average consumer. The average consumer, and I hear this all the time, does not understand the difference between USB-C, the plug, and Thunderbolt, USB-3, and all the other um, uh, standards behind that plug. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a licensing thing. I mean, that's, that's what it is and wh- why we're in this situation. And if everyone remembers, there was the guy at Google who took it upon himself, an engineer, who started building a spreadsheet of cables that won't fry your device. First batch of USB-C cables, if you plug the wrong USB-C cable off of Amazon into your phone or whatever, and they were getting fried. So he would just test them and then put them in the spreadsheet. I mean, that's how bad it got. I I label my cables (laughs) and I test them. You can test them for power uh, throughput as well as, um, you know, you get a little external testers and then you label them because you the ones that matter. Yeah. So so that you can figure out what's going on there. Yeah, good, Courtney. Yeah, uh, as was pointed out by both of the previous people. Hey, you're still you're still open, unmuted. Uh, I found a website uh, that is uh, understanding the symbols of USB uh, that has the compliance symbol for. Uh, uh, what you're looking at on a port, and so the difference between high speed, super speed, super speed plus, super speed with power delivery, uh, super speed plus with power delivery, USB 4. So you can see what all the little symbols are there. So if they're past the USB organization for compliance, they're allowed to use these different symbols. Uh, but Which they don't a, put on anything. Well, they, they're supposed to put them on the cables, and they're supposed to put and them on the... you're trusting that the, G- the Chinese uh, knockoff cables aren't well, putting the wrong little... Right. On there. That's what the licensing is for, you know. But if they don't pay the licensing to put, and they just duplicate a standard USB. I mean, if they put the simple, the simple, just standard USB symbol on it, which is this, uh, and they don't, and it's more capable than that standard symbol, you're not going to know unless you try it. This is a, you know, <laughs> standard by open committee where, where none of us are as dumb as all of us. All right, next question. Next question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. And the DaVinci Resolve render settings, there's an audio normalization setting for target loudness, peak and uh, loudness using units full scale. But there's, but it's always way off. He's tried manual settings, tried YouTube mode. What's he missing? Go, Jeff. Well, in the interest of time, I'll just throw it to anyone who has an answer for me. Why isn't it giving me my final loudness correctly? Uh, I don't use any of the the normalization settings, so I, I make sure that it's what it, it should be on the way out. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, well, that's that's why the setting is there, right? Yeah, don't 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 do it. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. My question for Jeff is: In which direction is it off? Is it coming out too low, too high, or don't even know? Oh, usually too low. Yeah. And in fact. Um, it seems like it's really not changing it at all. So, you know, I'm getting like negative 23, 22 instead of yeah. like the YouTube boat should just give me 14. Yeah, the, the, the way to fix normalization is not to use it. Go ahead, Morty. Yeah, it seems that normalization is actually looking for the highest peak in the signal and, and setting the level so that that meets the target. Well, they have a setting, the options allow you to specify both, you know, uh, a LUPS as well as a peak. So in theory, it should be doing that. You should not use it. Yeah, yeah, thumbs down. But then don't put the (laughs) setting there if it doesn't do anything. You know, they, yeah, don't. 
it's not worth it. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that, that's all I'll say. Um, yeah, quick reminder that we have, of course, today we're going to be talking just a couple minutes about Practical Guide to Equalization. Tomorrow we're going to talk about the Practical Guide to Interviews. And so uh, we're really going in a more practical, like nuts and bolts. So we've talked about like how to think about interviews and how to think about that process. And But this is really about loading in and figuring out where you're going to put things and lighting and and the and the process of it. So it's really a logistical discussion about interviews and how to put those things together from a from a video perspective. So um, that's what we have tomorrow. Of course, on Friday, the team or parts of the team are going to come in and talk about how the incredible coverage of IBC was executed. So they're going to talk about the how they did the backhauls and how they set it all up. It was really a great um, great. If you haven't seen any of it, you can go back and, and take a look at that. Um, a quick reminder that on um, Monday, uh, we're going to have Ian McKaig on, um, and he was just on Gray Matter and his incredible interview. Listen to that. Uh, it's on graymatter.show. Listen to that interview and think of the questions that you want to ask uh, because it was, it's going to be an amazing interview uh, coming up on Monday. Let's jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and uh, we are now going to talk about practical uh, EQ, and I'm going to hand this off to Jeff to kind of set the stage. Go ahead, Jeff. So several weeks ago, we talked about equalization, kind of broke down the actual controls and parameters, and we figured it'd be a good idea to bring uh, a couple of sound sources to uh, to just EQ on air, and uh, I'm going to hopefully share... The ATEM, so I've got a uh, sound source coming into uh, an audio input of the ATEM, and this is the equalizer built into the ATEM. I figured it was a good uh, sort of common denominator that probably most people have access to. It's not my favorite EQ in the world, um, but uh, let's see if we have some sound coming here. A great fire blazed on the hearth and the smell of cedar cleanly split. Is that coming in? You're hearing that? Absolutely, I am. Okay. So so this is a, uh, a female voice uh, doing a narration. And um, so where to start with this? Um, definitely, I like a high-pass filter because female voice doesn't go very low. And so this will assist with any uh, popping and rumbles and air conditioning noise that's in the room. Um, I wish that the uh, ATEM... Um, High pass filter was a little steeper. This is a 12 dB per octave, um, but we'll use it because it's what we have. A great fire blazed um, on the hearth, and, as we roll that and the up, smell of cedar cleanly split and sweet wood burning bright wafted a cloud of fragrance down the island. Deep inside the cave, she sang the goddess Calypso. You hear as I go too far, the voice gets thin. So we're probably looking at somewhere in the for men 100, women 120, somewhere in there. We can go higher, we can go lower. Um, this is, making sure my mic's on. Um, so this is an isolated voice. So we're not dealing with this going out through a PA system, where, which is gonna be vastly different if we're having the ring of the room. Um, and then, a great fire blazed on the hearth, and the smell of cedar cleanly may want to support split her and sweet wood burning bright just a little bit. wafted a cloud of fragrance down the island. Deep inside the cave, she sang the goddess Calypso, find up here in the, lifting in the upper her breathtaking voice that, as that she glided back and, and forth probably some of her, her sibilance. Her golden shuttle weaving. 
But as for great Odysseus, a great fire blazed on the hearth and the smell of cedar cleanly split and sweet wood burning bright wafted a cloud of fragrance down the island. Deep inside the cave, she sang the goddess Calypso, lifting her breathtaking voice as she glided back and forth before her loom, her golden shuttle weaving. So it's not a terribly recorded voice to begin with, and we just give it a little bit of, of cleaning up, a little bit of support. Um, I'm going to switch to a different now male voice, and let me... Reset that AQ. Where were you when I planned the Earth? Tell me, if you are so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? What were its pillars built on? So there we hear a who vast difference the when we pull out the, the low frequencies of male voice. And, and as you play with this, um, one of the things that comes up is, is when you think about how to create, not just for the basic, like making something sound better, but you can hear as Jeff pulls that in, the ability to do effects. Like you want to do a phone call. You want to do, you know, something that's far away using, you, you know, this EQ is giving you the control that you need to kind of make that actually happen. Yeah, so if I want to make that sound more like he's... Phone call, telephone. Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me, if you are so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? What were its pillars built on? So we can look for who for laid like down the cornerstone while the morning stars burst out singing and the angels shouted for joy. Have you ever? Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me, if you are so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions, measuring its length with a cord? What were its pillars built on? Who laid down the cornerstone while the morning stars burst out singing and the angels shouted for joy? You can hear the body you come ever, back into it when you pull that. So when you, where when were you, you bring that bass up a little bit, you could hear the body just kind of flowing back into it. Um, right. So that's where I would love a steeper high-pass filter because I, I can only get this up so far before it begins to affect that body. And you see that I'm beginning to add some of that body back in just above where I'm trying to cut out the, the garbagey lows. These, these, are, these two voices here don't have a large problem with with plosives and popping, which we should try to prevent at the mic. First of all, we should try to use a pop filter, try to have good mic technique where we're not talking directly into the mic. Um, so I have a, a sung vocal that's got a little bit of, uh, let me see if I have the right one here. Pain, pain deep in my heart, pain deep in my heart. I've been living with this misery. Sorry, wrong one. This vocal tended to be a little too close to the mic. Now what do you say to a young soul who gave you their heart only to let it go? So we hear that he's getting a little bit of popping and and kind of that proximity effect that's a little too strong. Now what do you say to a young soul who gave you their heart only to let it go? 
And I also found once this was put into a dense mix of music, it really lacked uh, kind of the clarity that it might need. Now what do you say to a young soul who gave you their heart only to let it go? But and one of the reasons he was so close to the mic is he wants this really intimate, breathy, but it was getting, you know, these artifacts and this low frequency stuff going on. So rolling that now out. What do you say to a young... So this second band is, if I turn this one up, you see is a, is just a shelf filter. So we can kind of generally shape the lows and the highs. I'm still removing extreme low stuff because of popping. Now what do you say to a young soul who gave you their heart only to let it go but on her grave you promised me that forever we would be I was waiting on something eternal So the voice by itself not horrible, but with the equalization gets a lot clearer. And especially as it gets in with a bunch of musical things, it's going to need that. Um, I'm going to go on a completely different realm here. And this is sort of a repair. Um, and this is a, uh, hi-hat mic, uh, as part of a full drum set. And it had, uh, some, some problems in the, the wiring has got a, a terrible hum in it. So you'll hear as I roll out the lows, that hum is going to go away. But another option uh, is to use a notch filter. Um, I was just going to about to say, have you ever used a notch filter for that? It seems like a, <laughs> so that's it. We want one ahead of me. There you go. Yeah. So hum is usually based on... Uh, line frequency. So our power in the United States is 60 cycles per second, 60 hertz. So we're going to have 60 and harmonics of that. Um, so I'm going to leave this one off for a moment, but uh, set it to be a notch filter at 120. Now, probably that does the fix, and then musically putting this in a mix, I probably would end up rolling off some of the lows anyways, and maybe even brightening this hi-hat a bit. And how did one you know that, that it was, for their listeners, how did you know that it was 120? So you had 60 and 120. Uh, harmonics, the harmonic series. So uh, overtones always are integer multiples. So 60, 120, we could try 180 to see if that gives us any... Uh, additional improvement here. So that's just a, a fact of anything that's periodic. If it's uh, 60 cycles per second, it will have only frequency components at 60 and integer multiples, two times, three times, four times, five times, um, 60 hertz. And that goes for any... Any periodic, anything that has a pitch, that's that's the harmonic series. So that's, you know, what makes a trumpet playing an A sound different from a piano playing an A sound different from a hum, uh, you know, because it doesn't know the words, but um, <laughs> So 
one thing that that's interesting. Only, sorry for interrupting. Is that only no, if it's good. a sine wave, or does if it's a square wave at sixty, doesn't it have odd numbered harmonics as well? So a sine wave is only the fundamental. So it would just be sixty, and all the other harmonics would be at a, an amplitude of nothing. And a square wave, the odd harmonics have an amplitude, and the even harmonics do not. So. 60 would be would have some amplitude 120 would have no amplitude 180 would have some amplitude 240 would have no amplitude and that's just a particular uh uh thing about a square wave is its odd harmonics um and that's kind of what makes the thing to know about this is that remember that a doubling is um an octave so the even harmonics in this case, 60, 120, and then four times, which would be 240. Those are all things that musically work nice. Um, so they are an octave above and two octaves above. So if, if our note is an A, it's an octave above, it's another A. It's an oct two octaves above, it's another A. Those tend to sound pleasing, and odd harmonics uh, tend to sound a little harsher because they are the fifth and the third and the flat seventh and these other notes that are not as... Uh, consonant as harmonics, as uh, as octaves, and so things that cause odd harmonic distortion, uh, things like distortion, clipping a mic preamp, transistor mic preamp, clipping digitally, that tends to be harsher than do uh, things that give more even harmonic distortion, things like vacuum tubes run correctly and uh, analog tape saturation tends to be a little more pleasing sounding. That's why we like the distortion of certain things and don't like the distortion of others. And now we've swept uh, way off of uh, EQ. And these, this hum, if you're in a different part of the world and your power is at 50 cycles per second, then everything is 50 and integer multiples of that 50 100 150 and so on something that's interesting about this is that musically if i were going to decide to just roll off now the lows of the hi-hat because there's a lot of just low frequency energy whacking on a hi-hat i might use that same um, high pass filter as i sweep that up listen to the interaction of the high pass filter and the notches because Every EQ will interact with all the other EQs. So as you, as you sweep this up, while the notches are doing a really good job of pulling out those hum, when I get across certain frequencies, that hum will jump back up because of the interaction of the two EQs. So it's a subtle thing, but that hum actually comes and goes just a little bit depending on how these interact. Should I keep going or you want to go to questions? No, keep going. We go, we're, uh, if you're watching this and you, and you have questions, you go ahead and um, throw them in. But let's go, let's go a little further and then we'll open up to questions. So uh, go ahead and start throwing those questions into Makana. And you can also use, of course, I am paying attention to the drop. So if you want to go ahead and use askofficehours.com, uh, you can do that as well. Um, but go ahead and throw those questions in. So here's a, a 
poorly recorded kick drum that sort of sounds like you're just beating on a piece of cardboard. Um, and if I kind of raise up, so I'm, I'm doing a boost here to find this particular frequency and I'm going to broaden that EQ. That's, so this is a peak EQ and I have a, a frequency and I have a gain and a Q or a, a width of that filter. So I'm making it a little broader with a fairly sizable amount of boost. I'm listening for that, what I consider to be the terrible cardboard sound of this. So there's, a, you know, of course, a nice thump down here. We're going to go find that later. But first I'm finding all this sort of low mid that, that actually makes this drum sound bad. And then after I've done that, now I can go look for this fundamental thump and probably narrow in on that. And then maybe look for, there's somewhere we get a little bit of attack and snap. Up here, you're going to hear the snares coming through, so I don't want to be there. So we're kind of turning what's a very flat and uh, this, this was purposely chosen as, as the wrong mic for the kick drum because it didn't do any of this. Um, and then we're kind of with EQ helping that out. I would always... Uh, you know, encourage you to listen in the process and choose the mic and choose the placement first and not just assume that you're going to fix it all with EQ. But if you're stuck with something like this, then it's a case where, where we can help things out. And so there's a process of taking out things I don't want and adding things, enhancing things that I do. And, and definitely listening to things. And, and you can find some of this on YouTube. I, I know in my early days of radio, there was a a CD, I think it was called Golden Ears or something. It was like ear training and it would tell you what was wrong with it and then it would move through it. And it was a serious red pill conversation because it was like, you know, the, like the, for those of you who don't want to say red pill, like from the Matrix, like it was a one of those things that as soon as you, it just went through and identified all the things that could be wrong with your audio and all the things that you're looking for your audio and then you couldn't stop hearing it everywhere. Like you just, it was, it opens it up. So listening to these things really makes a big difference. Let's, the panel's got a couple things and then we'll jump into questions and we'll come back to, to uh, more EQ. Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, uh, one thing I figured I'd add, um, when you mentioned, Alex, that this is how effects like speaking on a, you know, mimicking a telephone and things like that. One thing that I found handy is... Uh, EQ, um, if it's from a trustworthy, reputable manufacturer, will come with a bunch of presets for telephone, AM radio, and male vocal, female vocal. And while, of course, they're almost certainly not exactly right for your particular voice you're recording, they'll at least give you a reference. You'll see what are they doing to the EQ to try and achieve what they think is good for that type of sound and understand which bands they're moving and, and everything they're doing to that and, and kind of uh, take it backwards like that. Yeah, Jeff, that's a really great point, um, especially with EQ, because we tend to have certain frequencies for certain instruments. They're not going to be the right booster cut um, because that might depend on what 
mic you used and where it was placed and how much uh, proximity effect happened. But but those can help you as you're learning EQ, calling up that preset for you know bass guitar or male vocal has typical center frequencies and typical cues, and then you need to use your ear to adjust those those levels uh, a little aside. The same thing goes for dynamics. Um, you can use presets to get you in the ballpark for attack times and release times and ratios of compression. The big difference in compression is the preset you know, the manufacturer that wrote that preset has no idea what level you recorded your track. So the actual threshold of the dynamics will not apply. And that's, that's where you need to, again, use your ear and adjust the threshold. But yeah, presets can be, uh, don't just turn them on. As Jeff said, don't just turn them on and leave them, but they can be a great place to start. Sorry, go ahead, Mark. Good morning. Yeah. So when I think about how I'm going to approach EQ, I'm thinking that there are particular reasons for applying EQ, and that would be corrective, creative, and destructive. And then there's subtractive EQ and additive EQ. Um, And then I know that when it comes to speech, uh, it's all about intelligibility. And so there might be times when I'm listening to a voice, somebody speaking in a microphone on stage, probably a lavalier microphone because they can be the most inaccurate and difficult to place. Um, I'm thinking this voice sounds a little thick, right? Um, Maybe there's a little too much mid lows and to, to make it clearer, easier to understand, better intelligibility, I may pull down a little bit in a certain frequency range. Now, whether it's speech or music, there are certain frequency ranges that are widely recognized uh, to have certain characteristics. And um, Michael Curtis, who we had on this show a while ago, produced a, a document that you can find online. It's called the Nine EQ Pivot Points. And in that document, it spells out very clearly which frequency bands have which characteristics, when you want to boost them, when you want to cut them. And so whether you're doing music or speech. Go ahead, Chris. Um, I yield my time. It took too long. I totally forgot what I was going to say. (laughs) <laughs> you got to write it down, Chris. We're getting to that age. You got to write down. Right, just I got Courtney. Getting to that age, I'm way past that age. <laughs> go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, uh, here's a little anecdote. When moving, those of us that are older and transition from analog to digital, uh, in doing production recording for the film business in the uh, '80s, when we were transitioning from analog recording on the Nagra on tape to uh, digital recording on DAT. There was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of uh, prejudice against digital, and the common, the common description was, "Oh, it sounds too brittle. I don't want to. The we got to go back to analog. That uh, that all the sound that's coming out of production sounds too brittle in this digital stuff." And the difference was that in analog recording, a production recording, you're using a nagra that cuts off, rolls off around fourteen thousand cycles 
fairly radically if you're recording at seven and a half IPS. And so uh, for the first time, they were hearing the full frequency response of the microphones. And a lot of the microphones at the time, like the Sennheiser 416, which was the primary, uh, it was a 415 at the time, has this boost at about um, uh, 5 to 10 kilohertz uh, to increase intelligibility. And because those microphones a lot of times were put in, in windscreens, that would attenuate a little of that. So they were boosted on the high frequency. And I found that to satisfy the producers, to keep them from forcing me back to analog uh, because of the warmth of analog, I just would roll off about uh, 3 dB in the 5 to 10,000 uh, hertz uh, range for the microphones, and they suddenly thought, oh, it's warm again. You know, how did you do that? Yeah, the magic of equalization. Uh, because, and now we've become used to full frequency response in all digital equipment, and a lot of the intelligibility has suffered, as was pointed out earlier, because uh, hearing flat full frequency response can uh, reduce the intelligibility of dialogue so now you know they have to you have to equalize correctly to to pull the dialogue out of those low frequency sound effects that are full frequency uh, to to maintain intelligibility when you're fighting against the music track and the and the sound effects track Let's go to the questions. First question. First question comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. As we get older and our hearing changes from that ridiculous sound system we put in our car, how do we compensate when adjusting EQ for the masses? Marty? Yeah, it's interesting that you chose that example because anytime I get into somebody else's car and we're going to go for a while, a long trip, I'll, I'll look at the EQ that they have set on their on their sound system, and I'm I'm frequency uh, frequently uh, aghast at, at at how they choose to to equalize their sound and make it pleasing to them, but uh, nevertheless, um, as we as we age, as we all age. Uh, our hearing changes slightly depending on our environment and what we listen to frequently and whether we go to a lot of shows or rock shows or uh, we're around uh, subway trains or airplanes or whatever. And it, it, you know, every once in a while I'll go to an audiologist and I'll have my ears tested, have my hearing tested. And that comes out with a graph of, you know, what I'm hearing well, which frequencies I'm, I'm kind of missing or I'm a little low at. And, you know, Ideally, we want to have a flat hearing, and so that what we we can be confident that, or can we be confident, is the question that what we hear is what most other people are hearing, because everybody hears a little differently. So by having a hearing test and having your ears checked every couple of years, you can kind of know what you're missing, what what frequencies you're hearing more of or less than, and and you can hopefully apply that to the sound when you do mix. Uh, and then compare that with some uh, some measurements that you can take in the field in the rooms as well. Go, Jeff. I think it's also really important to compare what you're producing against other things in a like genre or like system, so that you can uh, you hear someone else's production and you can hear okay that sounds dull to me and that's maybe because 
I'm older and I've lost some of my high frequencies. So when I create mine, I need to make sure mine sounds dull in a similar way. Uh, I don't make mine sound flat to me if I've lost high frequencies in my hearing because it's going to sound bright to everybody else. So always comparing against other things in the world. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Jeff. Um, and that's a great point also, Jeff. And, and that's something I frequently do is is kind of uh, set that reference um, but Marty, are, are, are you saying that you're actually taking numbers, levels from what you're getting from the audiologist and, and trying to use that in your own EQ compensation? In other words, 2 dB higher in this frequency than normal. Like Jeff was just saying, if I know that my high frequencies uh, are, are missing, you know, by a certain number of dB, which the my hearing test chart will show, um, then I know that, as as he just said, I don't want to mix it so it sounds right to me because it'll sound bright to everybody else. Um, uh, I've, uh, I've seen f- hearing test response charts for people like my wife, for instance. She is missing like 8 to 10 dB in, at 2K, which is a key... Um, voice frequency for speech and sometimes she has trouble hearing what's happening uh you know when we're watching tv and so i have to translate for her and you know you got to know what your what your personal response is and how to re re uh, uh, translate that to what everybody else is hearing next question Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas says, when you have access to an RTA, a real-time analyzer, do you prefer to use an RTA while EQing or use your ears first? Jeff? So we've kind of moved on from RTA, and I think Douglas means uh, a spectrum analyzer. So an RTA was just certain... uh, third octave band run into meters, whereas a spectrum analyzer is a full uh, FFT display. So kind of this, let's see if you can, you're not hearing anything, but you can see music playing and you see frequency from low frequencies on the left to high frequencies on the right. So a lot of EQs will give you that in the display of the EQ and it'll show you that... um, the actual spectrum, so energy versus frequency in there. It's useful if there's particular, like in the case of that 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 hum, it would tell me, uh, am I seeing 60 and 120 and 180? We may see those peaks in there. Um, it can help you narrow in on particular frequencies. Um, but generally, I would say I use my ears first. Um, correctively, I might use the uh, spectrum analyzer tools but musically doing doing creative EQ or making things uh, fit together better in a mix, it tends to be ears. Marty? Yeah, so on the X32, uh, in the EQ graph on the screen, it will also show an RTA. And um, I use the RTA mostly for room tuning before the event. Um, but uh, if I'm playing something back or if I hear speech, um, I can see what the frequency characteristic of that signal is, and uh, that will just give me a mental visual image of of what it should sound like, and then I can I can translate that. But um, 
Uh, during an event, the most uh, useful way to do this is to compare, to have software that can compare the original signal that you're sending or or that's coming from the microphone to what is being produced in the room. Because um, if you have, if you can compare the original signal to what the audience is actually hearing and then look at what the difference between those two is, then that will give you a really good idea about how to apply correction in terms of frequency bands. And that's an FFT with dual channel application. So you have the original signal as a reference, and then you have your measured signal, and then you can make corrections accordingly. Jeff? I'll just say, um, especially like Marty pointed out, for these things that are um, consistent, um, and especially for posts, I don't know how how well this would serve you um, live, but this is, for example, uh, this is an example of uh, where I was trying to find uh, some hum, and just to illustrate how you can see that as I'm zooming in on the frequencies, we see these two very now noticeable horizontal lines. And this and is a spectrogram, look, like the, as as opposed to what we think of. Oftentimes, we think of it as an RTA. RTA yes. is the kind of levels. This is a, a much higher resolution picture of the of the image. And turn sideways over right, right. time, right? Yeah. So, um, and then if you look at these lines, sure enough, here's one at 120 and here's one at 60, very consistent as opposed to everything else. So it's it's good for seeing patterns like this, something that you can clearly notch out. And then, of course, also little individual blips of stuff. And I, I use spectrograms all the time time. <laughs> so, so I have them opened all the time. When we do live events, I might have 10 rooms up and I can see those bands. Like I can look over at a room and just go, that has a, a, a ground, a ground loop, you know, and without having to listen to it. And um, it's a, it's a really, you know, powerful tool in, in my opinion. Go ahead, Jeff. Jeff, before you leave that, will you go up under the window and show the spectrum analyzer? I think it's under the window menu. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. See if you get it. Do you see that? Yep. So that's the same piece of audio. Again, this is not real time. This is a recorded piece of audio that he's looking right. at. And you can see how with the resolution there, it's hard to pick out that 60 and 120 hertz bump. But looking at it over time in the, in the spectrum graph, uh, we see that 120 and that 60 line that just follows all the way through that whole thing. So different different tools are helpful to see different insights. And especially, and of course, I'll just say notching out things on EQ, That's it's very helpful for that. And then to what Alex is talking about, then the black belt is actually editing out things with using the spectrogram or spectrograph editing. Which uh, Audition, I think, lets you do, in, or, or what uh, Adobe used to l let you go in there and just circle things in, inside of that spectrogram. Um, and, and we use it a lot live so that we can see it. And we have all of these open. Like I have, you know, usually five or 10 meters. I'm a meter fiend when it, or, or scope fiend when it comes to audio and video scopes because I just, I, it's, what's important is looking at these while you're working, um, you'll start to triangulate what that means. You'll hear something and you'll see something and you'll start to understand what that looks like um, what, what, with what you're hearing. And you, as you triangulate that connection, you can just look at things and, and understand what's going on. Go ahead, Marty. 
You know, spectrograms are also very, very useful for finding resonances when you're working live with, with speakers in a room. Yeah, you know, yeah. resonance can be just something that just rings out. It doesn't feed back, but it's like pre-feedback. So it'll be a certain tone that rings out when somebody hits a certain pitch in their voice. And trying to zero in on that particular frequency to notch it out is very easy to see on a, on a spectrogram. Next question. Next one comes to us from Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway. In which situations should you boost frequencies with an EQ as opposed to cutting them? Go, Jeff. Well, the silly answer is if you want more of it, you boost it. If you want less of it, you cut it. Um, <laughs> uh, we learn early on as audio engineers, uh, hopefully early on, hopefully it doesn't take us a long time, uh, there's a thing called mix creep, that as we're mixing lots of tracks together, we, we tend to hear, oh, the guitar's too low, so I push up the guitar. And now there's, you know, that's covering up the voice, so now I push up the voice. Oh, now the drums are too far back, so we push up the drums, and everything seems to get, all the faders creep up. Fader creep, everything gets louder and louder. The same thing happens with EQ, that we tend to listen and go, oh, it needs more of this, it needs more of that. Um, but hopefully as we get more experience with this, um, as we listen to mixes, we don't have fader creep. We go, oh, it's not that I need more guitar. It's that the hi-hat is too loud and it's covering the guitar. And I pull out the things, reduce the things that are too loud. And the same thing with the EQ. We, we find the stuff that is problematic. So in that kick drum example, all those low mids that kind of didn't sound great. In Marty's example about the room, when we have that resonance of a person speaking and that they're low frequency energy with the way it's ringing in the room with the speakers as they talk their low tones just kind of ring on longer those are the things we're going to zero in on cutting and then if we're lacking intelligent intelligibility if it's a lapel mic that's down and you know maybe is a little off axis we might boost a little bit of high high frequencies to get that clarity that we need so it's always a balance between the two of cutting what we want to get rid of. And that's really where to start first and then boosting what we need. Good morning. Right. So if you remember back from, from Jeff's first session, what an equalizer does is level over frequency is, is to be the ability to change level at certain frequencies. And so, um, yeah, mix creep can happen inside of an equalizer. You know, you're listening to something and you say, well, this voice isn't quite crisp enough. It's not clear enough. So let me boost up the high frequencies. That would be additive EQ. But um, more experienced people will will first think about subtractive EQ. It's like, okay, so this voice is not very crisp. What is it um, having too much of? Uh, is it too thick in the middle? Is it bassy that's masking the high end? And try and find that problematic area and bring that down. And and now you're not increasing the overall volume of the track as you would if you were using just additive EQ. And things will fit much better in your mix. Good, Bill. Also, it's been weird because I'm a video guy, particularly when I was working on music videos. There's also a, a connection psychological thing. 
If I'm cutting to a guitar player, I am suddenly hearing that guitar more than I did before. If I cut over to the bass player, I am suddenly hearing the bass line more than I was before. It's the weirdest thing because you know that the actual mix has not changed at all, but your brain is so sophisticated that you can key in on particular players versus, uh, based on whether you're seeing that player in action. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a big aha for me. I'm, I'm not always mixing purely for the sound. Sometimes I'm mixing for that combination. Good. Courtney? Yeah, and if you're trying to match microphones, like if you have a, a microphone that's a lavalier and it's on a feature film, so it's hidden, it's underneath clothing, that's going to remove a lot of the high frequencies. So uh, you have to compensate for that if you're going to try and transition from an overhead boom microphone, which is not buried under clothes, to a lavalier microphone. You may have to boost the frequencies of the lavalier to compensate for the fact that it's buried under a couple of layers of cloth and you might want to roll off some of the low end too because it's a little more chesty sounding in the lavalier than than an open microphone next question next one comes to us from james brooks when eqing do you prefer to bump the frequencies or notch the frequencies that's essentially the same question we just had i think isn't it jeff yeah it's kind of the same question though i would say that uh generally notch as a notch EQ is a repair function that's going to take out a very narrow band of frequencies. So what we're typically doing is is boosting, that's the bump, or we are cutting with a peak EQ. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy, back from Tromsø, Norway. Can you discuss the differences between parametric, graphic, and shelving EQs, and when you might choose one over the other? Jeff? Sure thing. So we... Talked about this, uh, if you want to go back for super detail, go back to our previous episode on EQ. But um, basically, th- leaving out the notch, which is which is a very surgical function, uh, we tend to have three types of filters or EQs. We have the extremes, which are high-pass and low-pass filter. Um, so those happen down here at the extremes. This is a high-pass or a low-cut. And up at the top end, we have a low pass or a high cut and then also at the extremes we have a shelving filter and a shelving filter remember that sorry before i leave the the high pass and low pass those are attenuation only they are a low cut high pass then we get shelving filters which are closest thing that that lay people think about is a bass and treble control because the low shelf goes from a frequency so this is set to 100 hertz there's kind of 100 hertz all the way down to the extreme and then a high shelf does the extreme high frequencies from a particular frequency up to 20 kilohertz and this allows us to boost or cut an entire range of frequencies so those are shelving filters and then we have a standard peak eq or bell eq which has a center frequency it has an amount of boost or cut, and then it has a cue or bandwidth that allows us to change its uh, its narrowness or broadness, how much, how w- wide a range of frequencies it affects. When you speak about a graphic EQ, a graphic EQ is many, 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 many bands of peak EQ, and each of those bands has a fixed width and has a fixed frequency and has just a slider that does booster cut. And so we'd have those set maybe say third octave, um, third octave bands. 
and you'd get 31 of those in a graphic EQ. Next question. Next one comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How many nodes are needed for a given task? When may you need more adjustment nodes, and when may having too many levers to pull distract you from your overall goals? Jeff? Typical musical EQs tend to be uh, four bands of parametric EQ, maybe five plus um, high-pass and low-pass filters. So, you know, a six or seven band EQ totally. Uh, that would be called a, a six-band parametric EQ because the primary uh, peak EQs have three parameters. So that's what we call a parametric EQ. Getting into actual system tuning where we're going to try to deal with resonances in a room or maybe uh match the sound of several loudspeakers in a surround setup if we have not been able to purchase the same model um, then we might need uh, more bands um, that are more more accurate marty so the fewest the the least number of of filters which you're calling nodes um, where we actually refer to as filters the least number you can use is better because every time you adjust an EQ, you boost or cut, you're also changing the phase characteristic of that signal, um, which is how EQ works. And uh, if you use too many filters, boost, cut, especially, you know, if you find that uh, you're boosting on one filter and the immediately adjacent filter you're cutting, uh, or you're, you're, you're dramatically boosting like a series of filters, then, then something's not right. Um, start a reset everything and uh, think a little bit deeper about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Um, what is there too much of? What is there not enough of? And, and try and be more surgical about your EQ. Next question. David Brady, New York City. Uh, in a nutshell, how does one get started in EQing a room to eliminate resonant feedback and so forth? I've seen it done, but I can't grok the procedure. Jeff? So what we're getting is we have open microphones and open speakers. And so there's a certain amount of gain you can get before feedback. And if a particular frequency is resonant in that room because of the frequency response of the microphone because of the placement of the microphones and the speakers, because of the placement of the speakers in the room, because of the size and shape and acoustics of the room, because of the frequency response of the speakers, many factors, a certain frequency may be uh, more resonant and therefore feedback sooner. And so dipping, cutting that frequency can help that. Is it the best tool? No. We'd love to treat the room. We'd love to get flatter frequency response speakers. We'd love to, uh, we can play with time. But oftentimes, the EQ is the tool that we have available and is the tool that is fast. We don't have time to bring in acoustic treatment for the room to deal with the resonance there. We don't have time to rebuild the room with non-parallel walls. So all we have... You know, it's kind of that that if if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Well, EQ is there, and it can help the problem even if it's not the best tool for that. Um, some people will raise the gain until you begin to get the resonance of that. So you excite the room with something with all frequencies, and you hear 
the frequencies that resonate and you begin to dip those and then you can increase the gain of that microphone. I'm sure Marty's got more to add to this topic. I, I oftentimes when I walk into a facility, I can tell you who won the argument because there's the the architect and the and the designer and the audio engineer, <laughs> you know, the audio engineers. And, and I can immediately walk in and, and just tell you the, the architect one or the audio engineer one because you'll see these rooms that look a little odd or even in and even event rooms, you know, these big stages and you'll see things in there and you realize that there was this and every once in a while you see both sides winning, you know, where they both, they obviously spent, but that's not by accident. If you walk into one that looks like that, it means that there was a lot of meetings, you know, and a lot of design and a lot of simulation to get to a place where both both sides were happy. Uh, it's really an amazing thing. And I think it's it's very under underestimated, you know, when people look at building the next event center or conference room or other things like that. Usually they just build a box and make it shiny. Uh, go ahead, uh, Marty. Yeah, I'm constant. I, I'm convinced that um, acoustics is not a required course in architecture school. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so there are many different uh, aspects to tuning a room. There's the, the frequency response of the loudspeakers themselves, and then there's how the room is reacting to those loudspeakers. So, you know, uh, first thing we'll do is evaluate the loudspeakers themselves by getting a microphone fairly close to the speaker, um, putting pink noise through them, measuring the output. And then trying to flatten that out, that gives us a baseline. Then we'll pull the microphone back into the room uh, in several different places. And uh, using pink noise again, we'll measure the responses and see how the room is changing that frequency response. And comparing different points in the room because acoustics is not consistent from one point in a room to another. Then there's... <clears throat> things that happen in a room that are called reflections. Uh, I will, after tuning a room, what I'll do is play pink noise through the speakers, and then I'll walk up, this is in a, like a corporate conference, uh, I'll walk up onto the stage uh, to where the various people are going to be sitting or where the panelists are, where the podium is, and I'll listen to what I'm hearing from the speakers bouncing off the various walls. And, and I'll find that I can hear a high-frequency reflection when I'm standing in a certain place or a low-frequency reflection. And if that ha happens to be where a microphone is, I know that that particular location is going to be more prone to feedback or ringing. And sometimes it's as easy as just re-aiming the speakers a little bit just so that the reflection changes and the, and the stage gets a little quieter. Courtney? Yeah, very good explanations. Thanks, guys. The, uh, uh, the tuning a room, uh, a lot of times you're, you're dealing with uh, the room's resonance and uh, standing waves. And a standing wave is caused when uh, one frequency, uh, the dimensions of the room equal a certain frequency. And here's a good demonstration of it. Uh, the red and the blue, which are the smaller waves that aren't changing amplitude, are changing in time as they're bouncing off different things. And when they line up, because of the distance between the speaker and the walls and the, or the walls from each other, they generate that red uh, frequency, which is a standing wave, which accentuates that frequency by several dp. So uh, to eliminate the standing waves or the resonance of the room, you need to find out what frequencies uh, have standing waves in the dimensions of that room and then 
equalize them down a little bit to uh, eliminate the uh, the boost in those specific frequencies that's happening in that particular room. Good morning. Yeah, and very good, Courtney. I'm glad you mentioned that. But if you bring that uh, that graph up again, um, you'll see that um, yes, there are times when certain frequencies are boosted, but there are also times when certain frequencies completely disappear. Right. So there's um, uh, nodes and modes. So a mode is when they uh, increase, and a node is when they decrease, and that's caused by uh, interference completely canceling out when they're 180, when the reflections are 180 degrees out of phase with the original signal, they completely cancel out. And that can happen at different points in the room. Like I've been in rooms where um, I'll play a 250 hertz tone, for instance, through the loudspeakers, and I'll walk around and in certain seats, it's really loud. And like three seats away from that, completely silent. Next question. Next question comes from Josh Kaufman in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. When is the common vernacular of E? What is the common vernacular of EQ? And can you give examples, things like flat, bright, muddy, warm, and so forth? Are there cases of confusion due to colloquial terminology versus universal terminology? Do new applications bring updated terminology? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so there's uh, a bunch of terms, and some of them have uh, positive connotations, and others have negative connotations. You know, warm is is a, an increase in low mids uh, that's that's good, and maybe muddy is uh, an increase in in low mids that's bad. Um, Somewhere I snagged this wonderful little chart. Um, so we have frequency across the bottom. Uh, right above that, you see kind of a general categorization into five ranges. Um, and then above that, there's what we were talking about with a graphic EQ. Those would be the the peak EQs that are on a 31-band third-octave equalizer. Uh, those are standard frequencies. Um, and then above that, a bunch of other terms. Uh, we've got rumble and thump and warm and punch and whack and crunch and air and edge. Um, are these well-defined? I would say no, they're general areas uh, that people can talk about. You know, uh, I want it to sound a little more green. I've heard that before. <laughs> go ahead, Marty. Oh, can't hear you, Marty. There you go. Okay, so right. So the, the document that I referred to earlier called the nine EQ pivot points, if you do a, an internet search, you'll find YouTube videos, you'll find the document from Michael Curtis, uh, otherwise known as produced by MKC. And he will uh, describe these ranges as uh, like one to 50 hertz is depth and weight. Uh, uh, 100 hertz is warmth and punch. And there's thickness and mud, uh, boxy and gargle, nasal and knock, edge and clarity, presence and bite, sizzle and snap, and air and plastic. There you go. Um, <clears throat> I encourage and, and you I to think look that, for it. And, and it is important to know what these are in a sense of, they are colloquialisms, but a lot of people use them. <laughs> and, and so you really have to be talking to someone saying, oh, I feel a little warm or I want it to be warmer. And you got to know what that means. Uh, next question. 
Next one comes to us from James Brooks in New York. Do you consider the voice ISO tool and resolve part of the EQ process? Thanks. Go, Jeff. I consider every effect uh, we use part of the EQ process, and and some affect them more than others. I mean, one that's a standout for me is occasionally if I uh, add a D reverb, uh, if it's like an interview that was done, you know, to a normal person who's in a normal room that's got ton of reflections and who knows how far away the mic is, um, it dramatically changes the the entire sound quality of that person. So you have to make sure that the bottom line, whatever you're going to do to that audio, that, that you then EQ in that final step to make sure that the final product sounds how you want it to. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy is back from Tronson, Norway. When live streaming and compressing audio using, using codecs like H.264 or H.265, how should one adjust their EQ strategy to maintain optimal sound quality? Jeff? I don't have a specific direction for you because it's listen to it after the compression and see if you need to change your EQs that you've done in the process of getting there. And, and and as a note, H.264 and H.265 are generally considered video for formats, and so you're really looking at AAC or MP3 is the is the format for the audio. The one thing to look at is high. The there's you can get a lot of errata over about eight to ten k that goes up to twenty k, and a lot of times I roll that off at about ten or twelve k. I roll roll it off, uh, and the reason for that is that there's this you'll get little air hits. And when it gets very low volume and you hear that, you'll hear this, you know, because the, the um, a lower uh, compression rate. So if you're at like 64K per, uh, per channel, which is a 128, which is very common, when you get down into those areas, you'll start to hear it hitting. And it's usually living up in that area there. And it just doesn't know what to do with it. And it just, it just comes out as little pops. And so a lot of times if you roll that off, you'll um, avoid some of that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says Isotope Neutron has an unmask feature which helps resolve frequency masking issues between two signals. When can this be advantageous versus manual EQ? And he's got a link there. Jeff. So the one thing that we've done today, which is probably uh, an EQ mistake, is we've been doing everything EQing in isolation. And so if it's a single voice, that's fine. But if it's a kick drum that's going to blend with a bass guitar that's going to blend with guitar and vocals and overhead mics and keyboards, then we need to actually listen to that in context. And so that kick drum... Um, one of the things that I was pulling out of that is room for the bass guitar and the electric, you know, distorted electric guitars to fit in there. And so I think that's what this, I haven't used the Neutron Unmask feature, but I'm assuming that's what it's doing. Masking is a, uh, a thing that happens in the human ear. Um, it's the stuff that goes into what Alex was talking about, AAC data compression, is that it assumes that you can't hear something that is being masked by something else, and so we're throwing away data. But sounds do mask other sounds. A loud sound at a particular frequency will mask sounds around it. So EQ is one of the methods that we use to make lots of instruments fit together in a mix. We let each of them sort of have their own uh, frequency range. And so we might pull out... Uh, low end of a guitar when it would make the guitar sound very thin to use those terms uh in in uh isolation 
but once it's in the mix with the bass, the guitar doesn't sound thin anymore. It actually prevents the bass from being muddy by those low frequencies of the guitar. Good morning. Right. So when we're mixing music, we want to be careful that um, when we want to be able to distinguish certain instruments in the mix, it has to have its own place in the frequency spectrum and and not be um, masked by another instrument that happens to occupy the same frequency spectrum. Um, they blend together and then you can't tell which one is which and you can't hear either of them. So um, we sometimes mix by frequency division um, where... <clears throat> You know, the lead vocal has its own place in uh, the frequency spectrum and will kind of scoop everything out that also occupies that frequency range just by a little bit enough for the voice to stand out. Now, the way that uh, neutrons, neutron works is by side chaining. Um, <clears throat> so we can we can scoop out things with an EQ, but they will always be scooped out. Right. So when you do side chaining, what you're doing is activating that uh, that EQ filter and, and the reduction in that frequency when something else happens. So with side chaining, you've got with standard EQ, you're working on the original signal with side chaining, You can activate the EQ with a different signal. And so in the case of uh, classic cases, kick drum and bass guitar. So they occupy the same frequency range. But when the kick drum hits, side chaining can duck the bass guitar just by a little bit so that you can hear the attack and the ring of the kick drum. And as soon as that's over, the bass, uh, the, the, bass guitar comes back in and you don't even notice it because the frequency response doesn't change because the kick drum is filling in that same frequencies. Thanks so much. Uh, great, great hour. Uh, thanks. Thanks to Jeff for doing all that prep, you know, for this, for this hour and making sure that we've had some stuff to listen to. And I think it just makes such a huge difference to hear, hear those examples and walk through those. We talked a little bit about it and we just realized that we really needed to have that. And Jeff, really, thank you so much for putting the work in to make that happen. Um, and uh, thanks to everyone else here, all the, all the panel, um, Jeff and, and Courtney and Marty and Bill and John and Chris. It's really, really great to have the, I think this, this conversation, it started off a little, I was like, oh, I don't know if we're going to get a lot of questions. And then of course we ran, we, we went over, we still, we had to send back like six or eight questions. If you, if I sent those questions back, remember that you can bring those in on another day. If you see, I would, I would wait for another Wednesday to bring those back in. So when you have these audio questions, we've got a lot of audio experts that you can see here that have a lot of experience. And a lot of times we're having them come in on, on Wednesdays. The Wednesday is our audio day. Um, so save some of those questions questions in your, uh, in, in, in your account in Makana and bring those back in um, and ask those questions. You don't have to give up on them. Just put them in the first hour uh, for another Wednesday. So, uh, but really, really great, uh, great hour. So just thanks to everyone on the panel. We can't do this without you. And it was just a really exceptional, 
exceptional hour. Um, and uh, thanks to the producers who asked all these questions um, and uh, made made sure that we we were able to move through the uh, through the both the first and the second hour with a great conversation. Uh, we really appreciate everything you do here. And then finally, thanks to the incredible team. There's a team that is now figuring out where we're moving. We're moving all our gear. We're figuring out where it goes. We had a great meeting with the dev team to figure that out. And they 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 um they pulled me back a little bit. I was like, we can do all this stuff, and they're like, eh, it's a little work. And so so anyway, so we we were we so so we're we're pulling. We're going to figure this out. So there may be a a little slowdown there as we go through that. But I just really appreciate the the patience and the hard work from our team on the back end, the dev, the dev team, um, the production team that's actually making this happen every day, the man management team that's figuring out that what we're going to talk about. Remember, we do this, we talk, figure out what to talk about 20 times a, a month. It's just an incredible, incredible uh, thing that we've built here together. So thanks to everyone for all of that. We uh, we traveled, oh, I see, I didn't get my thing. We traveled um, 72,000 miles today, 116,000 kilometers. And that is 571. I just got that off the top of my head. Oh, wait, no, I got it off the chat. 571 million bananas for scale. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you in after hours.